Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. It's time for the Root and Roots show on blogtalkradio.com. Now here's your host, Greg Rashid, bringing you the best in music, information, and history. When you sigh, never in my word land could there be ways to reveal in a phrase how I feel. Have you ever heard to turtle dove, bill and coo, when they love? That's the kind of magic music we make with our lips when we kiss. And there's a weepy old willow. He really knows how to cry That's how I'd cry on my pillow If you should tell me farewell and goodbye Lullaby of birdland whisper low Kiss me sweet and we'll go Flying high in birdland High in the sky up above All because we're in love Do 
So it, the popularity of Lullaby of Birdland had a lot to do with the fact that he insisted that it would be played every night so he could collect money uh, from the song. And as you said in the book also that it was uh, presented to George Shearing, the great pianist, and he really mm-hmm. didn't like the song. I guess he just yeah, thought it was he, too... Well, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, he... Um, Originally, Levy brought him a song and wanted him to play it, and Shearing said, oh, it was a terrible song. Uh, And Shearing, unlike a lot of musicians, was savvy enough to own his own publishing. So he, you know, he said, look, I'll write a better song. And Levy said, well, yeah, okay, but you have to give me the publishing rights. And, And Levy's wife was quite irritated by that because it was a significant amount of the income that came from the song came through the publishing. But he really had no choice. He was an employee at Birdland, and so he uh, wrote the song. And as I said, it was played every night on the hour when they were on the radio, and they broadcast from 10 to 4 in the morning. So the song generated a lot of income (laughs) for Levy over the years. It certainly did. And I have some of the old radio programs I was Braced enough to get a couple of those many years ago, and they're, they're, I mean, it's amazing. They are, you know, just a treasure to listen to. As far as, and I have a couple with Count Basie in it. But a lot of people believe. By the way, listeners, you can call in at four two four six seven five eight three one five four two four six seven five eight three one five. I'm talking to Richard. Well, it's it's not exactly clear. I mean. They they certainly, the club certainly in later years when Parker was, you know, after Parker died, they made it, they themselves made the connection, although um, <clears throat> there were several other nightclubs with similar names and similar gimmicks. The big gimmick at Birdland was that they actually had caged birds originally in the club. And when they first were promoting the club, they supposedly sent out carrier pigeons with with the press releases, <laughs> although I, I again, it's hard to know if that was exactly true. But but nonetheless, um, the the interesting thing is that Parker only played there a relatively few number of times, and so despite the fact that they, you know, in some ways cashed in on his name later, um, it wasn't uh, he wasn't someone who actually performed there as much as a lot of other. Uh, performers did for one reason or another. Um, the uh, you know there were several other uh, uh, competing stories about how Birdland initially got its name, and it's it's really not clear. But yeah, the general myth that has grown up is that it was named after Charlie Parker. Because I know you mentioned also in the book about the uh, I right. guess you know a lot of people are into chicken and. It, the bird may have come from that also. But talk a little bit about um, what, you know, because, you know, on the one hand, Morris Levy, like I was saying, he could be a really cruel guy. But on the other hand, I was, you know, I was reading in the book about how, you know, when Tito Fuentes' uh, mother passed, and he gave him, I guess, over $50,000 just to help him out. And he would do little things like that, but he was, Basically, everything was, you know, he was just a, you know, just a yeah, down payment. He, he uh, put the down payment on Dizzy Gillespie's house, and 
I mean, you know, it, it, the music music industry at that time was very paternalistic, and if as long as the artist didn't question the owners too much, uh, you know, they 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 could be subject to almost random generosity. On the other hand, um, Levy was infamous for not paying, particularly when he got into publishing and, and recording, for not paying royalties or at least not giving straightforward accountings. Uh, but, you know, what's, what's interesting to me about him is that it's not so much that he was doing things that were unusual for the time because a lot of people like Ahmed Erdogan at Atlantic Records did similar things, but Levy kind of took them to absurd lengths. And um, if you were on his bad side, he could be, you know, he could literally destroy your career. So it is kind and, of, and, you and know. destroy your life, too, you know, or threaten yeah, to destroy yeah. your life. Well, there are some, there are definitely rumors about him, uh, about artists who came to physical harm. It's It's really hard you know, to untangle what's true from not. And one thing I tried to be very careful about in the book was, uh, you know, to really truly vet everything and make sure that I wasn't saying anything that I couldn't support, you know, uh, because there are a lot of stories floating around and and many of them um, just you can't really, uh, you know, it's not the kind of thing that's easy to document. So, um, you know. I tried to tell the stories that I thought were, you know, supported. And also I just tried to, when not, I tried to say, well, here's what one person said and here's what another person said, and you can make up your own mind. And it's so funny, uh, Richard, um, when I promote, when I began to promote that you were going to be on and I was putting it out on social media that I was going to do this show, a very good friend of mine who's a music uh, director at a station Oh, he just really was upset that I would even talk about Morris Levy. I mean, he just considered yeah. him just the scum of, you know, scum. And as you say in the book, there's a lot of people that say that. Funny yeah. That in the... Go ahead. It's, a, it's very interesting that I interviewed a lot of people who knew him or worked with him and, and or artists who recorded for him lawyers and, and whatnot, and people still now, you know, 60-plus years later, or in some cases even longer, are, you know, there are people that are passionately uh, angry. Uh, most famous guy I, I noted in the book was Eddie Brigatti, who said, you know, I'd like to go piss on his grave. <laughs> on right. the other hand, there are people that are equally passionate about that Levy got a bad break, and you know he was—he was actually, you know, he—he he gave a lot of money to the NAACP. He was very supportive of, as I said, of black performers at a time when even the Birdland tours, integrated audience were written into the contracts. I mean, you know, so nobody is purely good or purely evil. And another thing to keep in mind is. That you know, even though these these the, the contracts themselves were rather tilted towards Levy, you know the the artists did sign them, and so in many cases, years later when they came up for lawsuits, they 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 couldn't win because they had agreed to the terms. 
that, you know, I uh, I don't want to be sounding Pollyannish. I'm not trying to defend Levy or say that everything he did was on the up and up, but it is true. There are people that are very passionate still on both sides of the issue um, about about him. And so, again, that was interesting to me because there are few figures in the music industry that are such lightning rods for so long. And, right. and that's, the best, that's the fascinating thing about him, that, you know, he was really a trendsetter. I mean, he knew musical trends many times while well, a lot of other people, you know, even understood. I mean, everything from... Yeah. Because well, that was unfortunately, like, I mean, he comes across like a pure, you know, a stereotype of what you would think would, someone would be in a mob. His love well, yeah, and, and also, I mean, over the decades, I mean, initially, um, the ma- certainly when you were operating a small label in the 1950s, you could not, or a nightclub for that matter, you couldn't get a bank loan. I mean, no bank would loan. You had no real assets. And so, you know, the mob, mob investment in the nightclub uh businesses and the entertainment businesses were rampant. So, I mean, it shouldn't, no one should be shocked that at that point in his career, Lee certainly had mobsters as investors. What is interesting to me, again, is over the decades, it it appears that, you know, that the mob got more and more control. And what's interesting, that Today's Show interview involved um, kind of complicated story, uh, which I tell in the book, about getting involved with a very large remainder deal that went south and it led him to be indicted um, and convicted, ultimately. And um, by that point in his career, it's really not clear how much freedom Levy had to to run his business. By that point, one of his biggest silent partners was a rather infamous New York gangster named Vincent Giganti who feigned madness but was actually very, very shrewd. And the FBI material tapes and whatnot really reveal that Levy probably had very little choice in what was happening to him. But yeah, the video itself is very unfortunate because it accentuates the the gangsterish <laughs> character of Levy. I mean, it really does. Right down you know, right down to the way it was, you know, it was filmed. <clears throat> he's kind of wearing a shabby suit, and he's filmed against this sort of blank brick wall. And But, you know, the other thing that you, you that I was told, and I don't know, I don't know if there's, I never saw his medical records, but he had nodes on his vocal cords, and that was why he, his voice was that, you know, so incredibly scary and imposing. But I don't, but that wasn't, you know, that was just, that, that happened to be a trick of fate. It wasn't that he was, uh, you know, but he does sound like the ultimate uh, mobster in that video. Right. And, you know, reading the book, too, like, he was a very imposing-looking guy, you know, as far as some of the folks in the book have been talking about. Now, he was intimidating. And yeah. People that no, were... he was, yeah, he was, a, he was six foot three. He was very muscular. He... He could be very intimidating, and don't forget, he grew up um, in the Bronx. His um, father died six months after he was born. 
His mother worked as a domestic and just barely scraped by. Um, he was essentially on his own from the time he was a young teenager and, you know, working various jobs. And so, you know, he was a tough guy. Excuse me. In a very, you know, in a very tough business. Because I was, you know, I've been on the air for over 16 years now on regular radio, internet radio, and people always ask me as far as getting in the industry, as far as musicians and all, and I always tell them it is a business. It's not fun and games. And you're going to, you know, in many cases, it's better to be behind the scenes in the industry rather than being the talent. Yeah, and again, there are many stories in the book that illustrate that, and, you know, I think one of the most honest assessments that I got from any artist was from Jimmy Bowen, who was a country singer-songwriter who said, look, you know, Levy never paid us what we were due, but on the other hand, we never would have been famous without him. And so it was a devil's bargain in a lot of ways to work with him. And certainly there were other people in the business who cared more about the musicians, you know, uh, and you know, and Levy really viewed them as as a means to make money, period. And that comes one of the the saddest part of, of the stories is despite the fact that, you know, initially he was very uh supportive of black artists, ultimately he he treated his artists re- like rather disposable commodities and he didn't really he didn't really know how to develop an artist or support an artist. Um so that they could really, you know, he was always just looking to get the most out of them at any one time. And so from that point of view, he made, he kind of dug his own grave, as it were. Yeah, talk a little bit about to the um, Joey D and the Starlighters, because that's a fascinating chapter. That's right, like, right. Yeah, talk a little bit about that, because that, that's just fascinating. Well, yeah, as I tell in the book, I mean, the, the peppermint, nightclub was a mob operated club and and actually it sort of accidentally became a phenomenon in the early 60s they, they just the, the the music was sort of a front as it were and that they hired this unknown band out of New Jersey led by this guy Joey D um and uh you know Morris, of course, with his connections, as soon as they became successful, really jumped all over them, signed them immediately to his contract, even though they were already under contract to Capitol Records, and showed show some of his clout in that he could, you know, pretty much move in on an artist and convince them and convince whoever else that they, uh, you know, had to go with him. Um, the, you know, the the whole this phenomenon got really incredible. I mean, it was like all the New York socialites were jamming into that club. There was there were even articles about twisting at the at the White House, and then people were shocked that such such uh, dancing was going on. Um, but you know, Joey D and the band really again uh, they were somewhat of a flash in the pan, and and. They kind, you know, they certainly blamed Levy for not paying them what they thought they, you know, they felt they had sold a lot more records than they ever were accounted for, um, and uh, 
you know, it's hard to say whether they would have had more success if they had had someone who had really tried to build their career, but they they um, didn't really outlast. Uh, they only really lasted a year or so, um, even though they made a couple of uh, quick exploitation movies. And, you know, I, saw, uh, I saw one of them when I was in elementary school in the first grade. I saw the government twist. That's why I remember Joey D. I said, gee, Joey D. I remember, you know, I yeah. saw that movie as a little kid, just like excited, but I'd like to see it again after reading this book. I'm going to look online and see if I can find yeah, it. Yeah, I, I don't know that it holds up as great drama. Another interesting thing about Joey D, of course, was they were an integrated group. They had a they had right. a black drummer and bass player, although most the publicity pictures were kind of split. There were a lot a lot of the they certainly didn't appear in the film, and they don't appear in a lot of the publicity pictures. So. But on the other hand, you know, it was it is interesting for for an early band like that that they were integrated. Yeah. Well, I mean, the Robinson story is very complicated as well. I mean, I think Sylvia was an extremely talented musician and extremely talented producer, who, in a non-sexist, non-racist world, would have been very successful. And uh, you know, she started out as a as a pop singer with with the duo Mickey and Sylvia. Uh, she married this guy Joe Robinson, who was known as a hustler. I mean, he was definitely uh, an operator from very early on in various different ways on the Harlem scene. Um, and the two of them ran various different uh, tried to run various different labels. Uh, and were chronically suffering from cash problems. Uh, Sylvia did some producing for Levy at Roulette, and she was, but she never really got credit, and she was never really paid what she felt she deserved. So she had not, she did not have warm feelings about Morris Levy. But when Sylvia and her husband came up with this idea of starting Sugar Hill Records, because they had been, they had gone to a dance club with one of their daughters, and they had heard some rappers and they were really, you know, Sylvia having an incredible year and instinct to recognize that this was the next big thing, uh, but they really lacked money. And so they, again, there was nowhere they could turn. So they turned to Levy and um, eventually, um, you know, for a while, the Sugar Hill operation was very, very successful, and she really doesn't get as much credit, not only for the original Rapper's Delight, but also for, um, you know, several other, um, for the, the message and, and for several other <laughs> records that that really set the model for, for rap, and they were for brilliance that really put all of that together. I don't think Levy can really take credit for... Uh, you know, understanding the music, but he understood the economic opportunity, certainly. Uh, but but unfortunately, the Robinsons were equally, uh, <laughs> they didn't really pay their artists either. And ultimately, the, the you know, they made a deal with MCA, which ultimately, ultimately they sort of lost everything. For a while, you know, they they were very proud of the fact that they took their profits from Sugar Hill and invested in the chess catalog, which was, you know, where Muddy Waters recordings and right. a lot of the classic Alan Chicago Blue. Blues recordings 
And, you know, for African-Americans to own those recordings was a particular point of pride for them, but unfortunately, ultimately, they couldn't hold on to them because they just didn't manage their – well, certainly Joe Robinson did not was not a good money manager. Sylvia Robinson, if she was a man at that period, she would be considered like Barry Gordy or something. I mean, she was, she's an important figure. Yeah, I, I think she certainly deserves, her work deserves more attention. And it's unfortunate that it is so intertwined with the business aspect of it, you know, right. and that, that makes it a, a little less clean. I mean, certainly. Barry Gordy, I mean, one of the FBI files indicated that Motown at one point might have been interested in buying roulette, and certainly Barry Gordy doesn't have 100% clean hands, but, you know, he has a much better reputation overall, certainly, and deservedly, perhaps, but as I said, a lot of it came down to the fact that she she was black and she was female in an industry that, you know, wasn't used to treating that type of figure equally. I mean, Ruth Brown never got royalty payments from Atlantic, even though she virtually, her singles established the label until she sued many years later. So that's part of the, part of the reason that I wrote the book again was that Levy is such a good example because he did things in such an extreme way that it really lays bare some of the some of the some of these practices that that everyone was doing to some degree, and that really should be more widely examined and acknowledged. And you've done a great job with the book. I got to ask you about because uh, this this part of the book is like I didn't I didn't realize there was a connection with Levy and and Al Sharpton. And mm-hmm. I had to read that part twice. Yeah, Sharpton. Talk a little bit about Sharpton, that. You know, a lot of people don't know Sharpton came up through the music business because he was yeah, actually associated with James Brown, right? And um, he's a he's an interesting character. There's a lot more research to be done, and you know, I couldn't. A lot of stuff came out recently from the that hadn't been known before, and I was able to draw on that information. Um, you know, he basically, uh, uh, yeah, participated with 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 various FBI things, at least according to the FBI. And of course, I've had people I interviewed say, "You trust the FBI?" I mean, which, you know, no, not a hundred percent. But you know, Sharpton certainly was a player in the story, insofar as he was brought in to try to you know, towards the end to try to get Joe Robinson to pay up money that he owed his quote-unquote investors. And it's an interesting, it's interesting that in the file of the, the final trial of maybe I found these letters that were really quite astonishing from where Sharpton wrote to the judge, you know, really threatening Joe Robinson's life uh, if yeah, he um, right. didn't pay. So that was that was surprising to me, but but yeah, I think someone someone with a lot more uh, legal knowledge and more access, it would be interesting to write about that side of the Sharpton story. It's certainly so. Maybe some. I hope someone will do that because, like I said, I had to read that chapter twice because 
I said, am I reading what I think I'm reading? And I just said, you know, that one letter that he wrote in particular is just like, really, what is he actually saying? You know, yeah. I want, you know, I want folks to get out there listening to, you know, tune into the show who will listen on a delayed basis and they're not listening live to pick up this book. It's on the University Press of Mississippi, Godfather of the Music Industry, Lawrence Levy, and it's by Richard Carlin, who's been gracious enough to be on the program today. And before you go, Richard, I just want you to, what, what is, what is uh, Levy's legacy to you? You mentioned stuff at the end of the book. Well, what is it to you? Yeah, I, you know, it's really interesting because uh, it's not so much that he made great records. Uh, it's, I mean, I guess his greatest legacy really was the original Birdland and the fact that, you know, he established a new model for a music-based club that was integrated, that was in Midtown Manhattan on Broadway, that brought this music and made it accessible. I guess from an industry perspective, he showed at the time RCA and Columbia were operated by a whole different social strata. Levy and his cohorts were all, you know, poor. They grew up in the slums virtually of of the Bronx along with many of the black artists there and many of the Italian uh, gangsters who would become their funders. I mean, it was a natural meeting ground for all these people. So, but, I mean, I think that the fact that Bebop got the recognition it got and later on his role in promoting early rock, and certainly people like George Goldner, whose business Levy absorbed, um, were really responsible for documenting entire styles of music from, you know, doo-wop to, uh, you know, teen pop to rap, as you say, that probably would certainly would never have been discovered by the major labels. Oh, definitely not. But again, Richard, I just want to thank you for being on. And if anyone wants to reach you to talk to you or email you, where, where can they go? Yeah, I have a Facebook page dedicated to the book, and certainly people can visit that. I also have a, a WordPress page. Uh, if you Google Morris Levy there, uh, those should turn up, and I'd be happy to hear from anybody. And uh, I do appreciate you having me on your program. Thank you so much for being on. You take care. Okay, you too. And again, the book is uh, Godfather of the Music Business. Morris Levy is by Richard Carlin. And it is a, if you want to know about the music industry, like I, you know, from time to time I do shows like this, and we get to the roots of music. And it's more than just the happy sounds of some music and all. You got to understand the industry. And like I was saying earlier, I have dealt with over the years a lot of folks who want to get into the business, want to get into the industry, they want to be the talent and be on the stage and perform what they think in front of thousands of people and make all this money. It's not that simple. And I always tell folks, if you want to be in the industry, it's better to be behind, you know, behind the scenes. Because when you're up there on that stage and you're... If you haven't heard Jolly Parker sing... If you haven't heard from Jolly Parker's things, you haven't lived. You should see all the people around here. Couples back there and couples back there, all sitting back and relaxing. And over here, too, we're all having one of the most relaxed times with Tom O'Rook this morning. It's, it's the wildest in life. you got to make it. Remember, we're here at Birdland at the Jazz Corner of the World, Broadway, 52nd Street. I'll answer that in just a minute. Uh, what's the matter? You got a cold? Don't feel good. 
Look, I don't dig it. All right, I'm sorry. <laughs> Here's another one of the most beautiful things. This is a single side that Charlie Parker made on uh, Mercury. I know you love Laura. <laughs>
your first step and out of space. Take your first step to out of space. Hey, 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 you can walk on Jupiter. Walk on Mars. Stop up. Space is the place. Yeah, space is the place. Space is the place. Thank you. 
the real world and the fantasy world and, and science. And, uh, you know, it was interesting having my mom uh, teach us about these things. And I don't want to neglect my, my dad was also a, a pretty big reader, though he read uh, Westerns. And, you know, uh, there's a little bit of influence of uh, space opera and Western together with, uh, you know, the idea of, the, of space as a final frontier that's ever receding. And so uh, there's a little bit of influence there, too, but I, I, I just it's, it's not funny really... Yeah, it's funny you say that, Isaiah, because we're going to get to this uh, shortly, but uh, one of the... And I, I wanted to make sure when I got this book that you mentioned this show, because you had to, you know, that two of the authors in here mentioned it, but um, Deep Space Nine, is I... Oh, yeah. Reading, his, reading history of Deep Space Nine, I found out that the father... <laughs> And the orphan, you know, the son that, you know, that was, you know, didn't have a, you know, have a mother that had died. And it was the same intent. And I remember, because I had a whole collection of all the Deep Space Nines on the DVD. And looking at it, and I have a collection of the Rifleman, believe it or not. And it, it, the plots initially were the same. It was the same thing, in a sense. So it's just, you know, fascinating that you did mention that, because a lot, you know, and I had read something else, too, that, a lot of the movies in the 70s, when Westerners were dying, they switched the plots over to space operas. And, you know, that's what a lot of the movies on our are. Basically, they're Westerners in outer space. Right. Uh, now, if you, if you look at Deep Space Nine, it's, it's like a, a frontier town, except it's a way station uh, between different quadrants of the galaxy. And so you get all kinds of characters that are out there, like uh, Otto uh, is a security guard, and you get the Ferengi that is like a barkeep that's always looking for money and stuff. And Cisco is the law, along with his uh, along with his people, right? And so, uh, when I say people, I mean uh, uh, Starfleet staff, right? And and right. so they they kind of do police that section. They're like the the sheriff in town, uh, so to speak. And it's interesting uh, uh, when. Uh, uh, Cisco becomes he he becomes like uh, like the character of Hawk from oh I'm forgetting the name of the show it's terrible but it, for me it gets it really was, interesting well, when he shaves his head and grows his goatee right yeah, and that's because that. originally it was physical higher but it branched off into Hawk it became the show known right. as Hawk right and thank you for that yeah it was it was kind of like that wasn't it but it, it's, it's, a, it's a fun show to watch that particular episode that's written about in my book by uh, my two colleagues, uh, DeWitt Kilgore and Jerry Canavan, is is fascinating because of the racial politics that are at play that are mirroring what was going on in the 50s and 60s in uh, the U.S. publishing industry, particularly with Samuel R. Delaney being, uh, you know, people didn't recognize him at Black as first because, you know, he was just a name, but he was writing in this unique style and started winning stuff and then he showed up at uh, at the Nebula Awards and, and people just couldn't believe it, right? And then you find out that this big uh, editor at that time, Joseph Campbell, kind of uh, blackballed him. You know, this is a great story, but people wouldn't believe in a black character, right? And so racism was alive and well in that era, obviously, over the top. And it's still that way today, if you look at, at various, uh, uh, if you go to different social media and look at tweets that go on 
against writers like uh, Nettie Okorafor and Kate Jemison or even now O. Hopkinson, uh, where oh, people who attack them because of, of their politics or what stories they choose to write in it. And it, you know, in some ways it's a, it's a little bit sad, but uh, that's the way the world works. These secrets, well, I can't even say secret, uh, but, you know, who knows what goes on behind closed doors in various homes and what people uh, teach their children and what's being said about different races and ethnicities. Well, you know, um, I don't want to bring, you know, I mean, you mentioned it in your book at the beginning. You mentioned a, a tale when you, you know, how you found out about race. And, and I'd like you to say a little bit about that because, that, you know, we all have the, unfortunately, Right. No, it, it it really did. You know, I uh, I didn't know if I wanted to go that personal in my introduction, but you know that's what that's one of the things that brought me into science fiction as escapism in some ways because you know I was basically the only black boy in in a, a suburb uh, of Buffalo. You know, we did go into the city on the weekends to visit with family itself, uh, right there on Pugeron Street, which is you know East Buffalo. Uh, but during the school year, uh, I was out uh, in the suburbs being raised, and I uh, was a smart-mouthed, uh, smart-aleck young man with a fast mouth and what I thought were faster feet. And, you know, in the middle of winter in Buffalo in February, you know, I, I mouthed off to some older kids at the bus stop early in the morning, and, and you know, that haunted me uh, that early evening about, oh, the bus got home about 2.30, 3 o'clock, somewhere in there. And, uh, you know, I decided I was going to race the bus from our street corner down into the curve of this court in which uh, I lived. Uh, Chasey Court was the street. And uh, I was wearing my blue moon boots, and I lost the race badly. (laughs) uh, Unfortunately, I won't name names. I remember them very vividly, but uh, these fourth graders were down there waiting for me uh and i don't know what i can and can't say on on the air but you know they were shouting obscenities at me and for whatever reason they circled me and and started punching and kicking me and i was literally in a ball bleeding uh in the snow on my driveway that had not been shoveled out that morning yet Uh, oh Three feet's nothing for Buffalo. I will, we'll keep it low and say oh, no. three feet. I don't want to aggrandize a story. But I know my bus driver, Joni was the name, had gone around the court and, and uh, came back down and saw all this going on. And she got out there and, you know, who knows what kids are going to do uh, when the, uh, you know, I want to call it Lord of the Flies almost, uh, when they're in those conditions with no parents around because, you know, we were latchkey kids growing up in that era for the most part. I was lucky enough that uh, my parents were home that day inside the house. They didn't know what was going on. Uh, my sister tells me, well, where was I? And I'm like, I, I don't know where you were that day. But uh, I remember walking up to the front door, uh, missing a moon boot and, and uh, bleeding from my uh, mouth, I guess, or nose. And, uh, you know, it's unusual to ring the doorbell, but I rang the doorbell and, and my mom opened the door and those kids had, had uh, you know, ran away after Joni came and stopped them and was in the first words out of my mouth were, I, I don't know, am I allowed to say it? Oh, sure. You, yes, you can. Yeah. Well, you know, they, they dropped the M-bomb on me as I, as I, 
think of it, right? And, you know, my mom and dad uh, were obviously irate, and we were up at the school the next day and at the parent-teacher board and before the board of supervisors, and the solution was to stick me in the front of the bus, ironically, uh, every day for the rest of that school year, and promises were made from uh, those various uh, children's parents, and then they seem to be nice for the rest of the year, uh, if that makes any sense. So it kind of all uh, cooled out. But out of that story, you know, my mom gave me a, a novel or a, a short story collection, right, uh, uh, The Martian Chronicles. And in that was, uh, as I talk about in the essay, the, the short story, Way in the Middle of the Air, uh, where you have all of the blacks leaving from the south on rocket ships for Mars and one character, Samuel Keith, trying to stop them and, and you know, dropping an M-bomb on them and trying to say, oh, well, we need all of this. <laughs> uh, you need your money. I need my money from you. You can't leave this, that, and the other. And, and it's an interesting story when community comes together and pays off debts and, and they get out. And later in the return story, uh, the other foot. Uh, right in the illustrated man uh, earth blows itself up and the survivors are are uh, are what's left of the white race and some black people don't look kindly on them uh, but one lady talks uh, talks sense into her husband who was the leader of, of a black wrench mob for lack of a better expression and uh, there's a chance for real change in Bradbury's stories so he's a, a really profound writer about social things it's so I'm funny, sorry, though, that, um, oh, no, not at all. No, you know, but, you know, it's so funny also that um, the movie version of the illustrated man is nothing like the book. <laughs> it's nothing. Oh, you hit the nail on the head. And nothing. Then, and and as I remember, on. The Martian Chronicles was on, I think they put it on television as a miniseries. And it's nothing like it either. Right. But it well, adaptations. Adaptations of, of uh, novels and short stories never seem to get them right, in in my opinion. Like the the worst one that I can think of, that actually uh, I would think of it as a as a decent movie. I'm I'm no film critic by any stretch of the imagination, uh, but I actually like the movie I Robots uh, for different reasons. Though it has nothing to do with other than Susan Calvin, it has nothing to do with uh, Asimov's. Uh, short story collection uh, as I think of it though other people call it a different type of text but uh, yeah it doesn't really you know there's, it there's some different it get works fixed. right and, and that's, it's a good, and that's it's a good okay. little you movie on the one hand but if you know the book it's like you know this is not what it is but I want to get back to and listen you can call in at 424 I'm talking to the editor of the anthology Black and Brown Planets, The Politics of Race and Science Fiction, Professor Isaiah Lavender III. Now, I want to get back to Deep Space Nine because talk a little bit about that, Deep Space Nine. Right. Uh, well, uh, you mentioned the third season, and that's a that's a, a huge turning point in, in uh, the Deep Space Nine show because it's competing with shows like uh, Andromeda and Babylon 5, which are you know, interesting in their own right, but it, it took a while to, to to get a following just 
because, you know, it is set on a space station in the middle of nowhere and there's no action. You're not going to other planets, but instead you have uh, people coming to the station and once in a while you have these uh, next generation characters showing up, right? Like, uh, like Worf. Right. Is is a particularly good example when it comes uh together. Uh now in terms of of the show picking up after the third season, I really believe that the the writing gets stronger. Uh the characterization you can spend a lot more time with character development with uh television shows, right? Now I enjoy Deep Space Nine. I I haven't bought the Star Trek DVDs uh, like like some other people, and I'm I'm not I don't know if I like the the new Star Trek being set between the original series and the Next Generation or before the original series. I think if I'm not mistaken, now I'm I'm not trying to evade the question, uh, or maybe I am. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Deep Space Nine and. <laughs> Deep Space Nine for for me, you know, I I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed having a, a, a black male lead of the show. Uh, it, it looked different. It wasn't something that you see too much or too profoundly on television, and we were able to uh, realize that as a, a race of people, hey, that could be me, right? And so right. I, I think race had something to do with the show. Oh, right. Uh, in fact, that Avery Brooks really, you know, he made it more Afrocentric, and he talks about it in his lectures. I was privileged enough to actually meet him at a Starfest many years ago in uh, in Denver, Colorado. And during his lecture, he talks about the fact that he purposely, he right. really, no. go ahead. No, 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 you're right. That's something in the 90s that we, we haven't really seen. We We still don't really see that on television today, right? A, a, a strong male black character. I have hopes for Mike Coulter as Luke Cage on uh, on the Netflix original Marvel mashup, right? That looks like it might be pretty good. But we haven't seen that in the 90s. And what I know of, of television history and, and film history is that it takes a, a while uh, for an audience to catch on. And eventually, hey, he, he brings a, a sense of humanity that lots of people do not believe about blacks because they believe in various stereotypes that have been right. spoon-fed throughout history. And so having a strong black male presence be a leader and humanize him took a while uh, for people to believe and catch on. But when it did, my goodness, that's one of the best Star Trek series of all time. Right, and, and I just believe it's one of the best series. Period. You know? Right, and it's so funny. You know, can, so funny. You, know, you can look that at science fiction. Right. It's it's compelling television, right? It certainly is. And right. It's been off almost what fifteen years or so, but it's still there's still this coded message. Yeah, yeah, I can't. You know, that's that's uh, unfathomable to me. And I, all I would say is look at look at the the last series, uh, Enterprise. It had a great premise, but oh, it was awful. kind of terrible, right? Uh, in its own right. Uh, but you know they they sit around and and let time pass. And and I know 
science fiction academicians think of Deep Space Nine as perhaps the best show uh, other than the original series. Now, of course, this is when we weigh, this is where uh, it's our opinion on, on this sense and, and this uh, way of thinking about things. Uh, hmm. I, I would probably put uh, Deep Space Nine third out of the, the five series so far, maybe second. Uh, because I grew up watching the original series, so I put it there, uh, or, or uh, not the original series, but the Next Generation. But they're, you know, they're the same universe, same timeline. So one's a continuation of the other for me, or at least that's what they were doing with the series at that time. I mean, Star right. Trek has done some progressive things. If you switch to the gender game and think of Captain Janeway and, uh, you know, the Discover one, that was a pretty good. Uh, or Voyager, not Discovery, Voyager. which was which was a, a a decent show in its own right, but not nearly as good as Deep Space Nine, right? I mean, Deep Space Nine had to have crossover as a deep space station uh, uh, between the, what what was it, the Alpha and, and Gamma quadrants, I think. So, without those things, or Delta quadrant, excuse me, uh, without having that continuity. Uh, in that universe with all these stories taking place at the same time uh, with a, a, a black lead and a white lead and a, a, a female lead. That kind of makes them intertwine in, in fascinating ways, whereas when you go forward or backward in time, it kind of falls apart, right? Because people get it's tired it's of seeing the same faces. It's 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 the fact is you see a black man at the end, on Deep Space Nine, become a god, basically. Right, like which is you will not see right. It's like my my head blown by that. A god to these people that you know they're they're the Bajorans, right? But it's still it's a cool thing. It's amazing. It's, it's, it's really amazing. beyond cool. <laughs> you know, so I recommend the listeners out there if you haven't seen Deep Space Nine and this thing, like I said, it's over. Guys, well, actually, twenty over. 19 years old, man, that's when it just went off, 19 years ago. I was just picking it up, um, looking at it on DVD, or just going online, because it's everywhere online. Right. You can find Deep Space Nine and just get an idea of what we're talking about. We have not looked at that show before. And if you get a chance to see Avery Brooks in person, or just go online to find some of his lectures at some of these Star Trek conventions, you'll see that this is... He's not. He's talking about something completely different to hear right. about Bajorans and you know just uh, Star Trek mythology. And he was talking about a whole different thing. Right, and that's the amazing thing. And I'm sorry for uh, the brain freeze. It's really the the wormhole that they're located on is is uh, Gamma Quadrant or on the edge of the Gamma Quadrant, right? Right. And and it's interesting having all of these all of these characters that can shape shift or different races and, and, and species that are, it's really a multicultural thing that's going on there uh, which you, you see in on the bridge of, of these various starships too but you get more into their lives uh, you don't have right. ensigns rushing off and getting killed because uh, everyone knows that uh, the main cast is always going to live right so it gives you a you know, real it's... chance to develop characters and, and care about them and, and it took a while for that to catch on. But yeah, in uh, fact, there's a, a lot of prior to 
Deep Space Nine. Some people say, well, prior to the Star Trek, but even the original Star Trek, the black characters that were on there, they were kind of window dressers. Oh, yeah. they, they were on the bridge. The horrors on the bridge. The was on the bridge. and They'd have a guest star that was black from time to time or, or Spanish or something, but still, they were just window dressing. You didn't know that much about these right. characters. But Ura uh, was was very important, nonetheless, right? Uh, right. Because uh, you know the actress Michelle Nichols was actually going to quit, but um, she had a, a meeting with yeah. Martin Luther King Jr. and he told her, you know, millions of of people are watching you, and young black people, particularly women, are are seeing you. You need to stay in that role, and so you know she listened. Yeah, she it did. Worked out for her. They had opportunities to meet so, her many years ago, also. And yeah, she she tears up when she talks about that because you know she was definitely going to quit there. Now I want right. to switch, switch gears because I want to get into your essay about Octavia Butler, particular okay. book that she wrote. Because um, one thing you know, I have you know I posted something on this year on social media about Octavia Butler and found out a lot of people. Had never heard of her, which really surprised me. And I want you to talk about her. And so, you know, I'm saying some you know, African Americans that never heard of her, who are who are science fiction buffs, I thought, but they didn't know about her. So some right, her that's just a- crazy to me. The first uh, uh, MacArthur genius that's black and a woman and a science fiction writer, right? Uh, uh, you know, the, the genius grant, the MacArthur grant is what they call it, right? right. Which uh, Colson Whitehead has, has also uh, won. But in terms of, uh, or did you know Diaz, excuse me, <laughs> and Whitehead. But people not knowing about Octavia Butler just, it drives me crazy because she is one of the great writers, period of the 20th century in uh, American history. If you read her novel, Kindred, I mean, she makes slavery come to life using uh, the idea of of, uh, the neo-slave paradigm or writers thinking back about history through an unexplained uh, time travel mechanism, right? And that story just leaps off the page. It teaches fabulously well. Students love it. Uh, and then, you know, I make recommendations about Octavia Butler to everyone. Everyone in, in science fiction circles knows Octavia Butler's work and loves Octavia Butler's work, right? And there are uh, awards dedicated to her uh, and travel monies for her, uh, not for her, but in her name that have been donated. And, you know, it, black writers worth their salt know of her they're writing science fiction or, or uh, uh, you know, mainstream fiction, I think. So right. the American reading public, who knows? Oprah didn't champion her, so <laughs> what can I, I tell know. you? You don't right? get, you don't get uh, the, uh, but, the ring of honor from so her. That's it. And it's a funny thing, too, about Octavia Butler, because I think, and I don't know, Isaiah, if you agree with this, but I think the current series that's based on the graphic novel, The Walking Dead, I feel that those folks actually read her work. Well, uh, if you take the character of Michonne, for example, and, and the strong uh, 
uh, uh, black woman that she is. And I don't know if you're talking about the graphic novels or the uh, the television both. series, but she, she's she's a, a, a great example of, of what uh, I guess you'd call a, a, an Octavia Butler protagonist would look like. Uh, she's strong. Uh, she's feminine, uh, though some people might not say that. She she seems well. Now I'm going to get myself into a corner because of of the uh, gender politics with uh, Butler that people read into her, which is which is fine, uh, right? But uh, yeah, to to say I I think they have read her. You, you don't know what creative people are reading all the time. You just know that they are reading, and they are reading more than uh, anybody else, I think, because you never know where the next great idea is going to come from. That's right. uh, but, but Butler, I mean, you have to think, uh, if, you, if you compare that, uh, The Walking Dead, with, uh, oh, I don't know, Parable of the Soul, uh, or a great near-future dystopian novel. Which is fantastic. You can you can see it, right? The the moments of cannibalism going on there. What happens when society uh, regresses uh, as it's facing, you know, uh, global warming or or uh, uh, uncertain presidential politics or capitalism running amok? And and you get all of those things uh, going on in Parable of the Sower and also in The Walking Dead. Except, of course, you have uh, walking corpses. <laughs> that's right. And so Some people argue that the walking corpses right now live here, but oh, that's yeah. another story. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You know. Definitely. <laughs> but real, real briefly, yeah, you know, real briefly, as far as your uh, essay about Octavia, talk about you know, because it's about the story is about the disease, and right. she always denied that it wasn't about race. Right but now, reading uh, your essay, it is about race. The book is about for race. me. It Let's is right once you know. Once a story is outside of uh, an author's control, critics, fans, readers are, are free to do what they want with it. Right, and and so uh, for me, I've I was always convinced that the Goad disease was uh, up. A matter of race, not race as we think of it in terms of black and white, but in creating a, a new, uh, I guess, subgroup of, of people that have been stricken by this terrible disease that makes them want to, you know, escape the, 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 the prisons of their own flesh by, by digging into themselves, right? Pretty scary stuff when you get into it. And uh, uh, what society would do uh, to prevent that. Right. If you think back just a few years to uh, the avian or swine flu uh, uh, scares in the old 2009, somewhere in there, it, that's not too far back to remember, right? And how people were going uh, a little bit paranoid, at least when I was in Arkansas, uh, with that uh, in terms of, well, you should always wash your hands, but oh, what's going to happen that look at these stories, oh, World War Z was kind of big then, and oh, no, we're on the on the cusp of this, and isolationists and survivalists coming out of the woodworks, right? Uh, now, it's not too far-fetched to think that society would not, uh, would, would uh, uh, put
put these people behind closed doors and, and let them finish themselves off, right? But the character of Beatrice Alcantara uh, finds some kind of money and finds some kind of hope, and she's a double DGD, and the main character, Lynn, also is, and they can have a little bit of influence over people stricken by these diseases to where they don't want to hurt themselves or other people. And so they become leaders in a sense. To me, that kind of reads as a, a, a racial allegory, whether or not uh, other people buy that or not. Uh, you know, that was well, I yeah. uh, I kind of my take on it. Yeah, definitely. You know, I agree with that also. But we're getting ready to, you know, I could talk to you all day about science fiction. I got to get you back on here because we're just warming up. Oh, cool. I'd love to come on again. You know, we're definitely warming up. So where do you, you know, reading the anthology, where do you see science fiction going as far as uh, African-Americans in particular? Because I had a friend ask me about, well, you know, does the book mention anything about Star Trek, Star uh, Ship Troopers and the Filipino aspect of it? I said, no. But just where do you see it going as far as science well, fiction? I, I see it going all kinds of, of places. Like uh, undoubtedly, you've heard of, of the, the theory called Afrofuturism, and I think oh, there's yeah, I a lot a, more Afrofuturism. One of the founders of that one here. What's that? I have one of the founders of that. You know, who wrote the book on Afrofuturism on here a couple of years ago. Oh, okay. I, I'm I'm just saying. I think. Uh, what we're what we are noticing now, in, in at least in academic circles, is that you have uh, uh, lots of cross pollination going on uh, across the Atlantic regions, right across uh, the the old triangle trade, if you want to think of it that way. So you have all kinds of writers uh, uh, popping up in Africa, producing uh, quality works, and you have all kinds of, of filmmakers uh, uh, in Africa creating work, and you have this Caribbean flavor that's coming in, and then you have mainstream writers uh, working in the Afrofuturist paradigms. Like uh, I want to say, if you've read or, or uh, Colson Whitehead's uh, The Underground Railroad right now with literal trains running in the 1820s, right? Uh, I'm hoping to get him on. I'm, I'm working on the publishing company to get him on here. I'm working on that. And by, <laughs> by the way, the person who wrote the um, what I had on the program was Natasha uh, Womack. I don't know if you know her. But oh, she yeah, wrote this yeah. book called, oh, yeah. Very good. I had her on yeah, a couple I, of times. I know her. She's, she's, she's fabulous. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, and she's, you know, uh, has some wonderful thoughts on, on Afrofuturism. And yeah. the work there is, is coming. There's all kinds of books uh, about it now. Like if I, if I want to name drop uh, Andre Carrington, uh, has a book that uh, just came out, Speculative Blackness, The Future of Race in Science Fiction is the title. And then uh, there's Afrofuturism 2.0 by Ronaldo Anderson and Charles Jones, which is a, a another, which is a collection of, of scholars saying things about Afrofuturism. I know that I myself have, uh, I'm working on a, a collection uh, with Lisa Yazak at Georgia Tech on Afrofuturism uh, as well. Uh, and so people are digging into the past, looking at Afrofuturist works and taking it further and further into the past uh, if they can, uh, and right. also uh, across the continent. So most people think of it as 
as a set of writers, Delaney, Butler, Copkinson, Tanana Redu, and, and Stephen Barnes, for the most part. And we part. didn't even really they're, get they're into Delaney. Writers. Yeah, I got to get you back on here just to talk about uh, Samuel Delaney alone, because that's like a show in itself. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Delaney is, is <laughs> uh, I, I think of him as the godfather of African-American science fiction, but uh, if you read his essay, uh, Race and Racism in Science Fiction, he'll point you to even earlier writers than he himself, which is fantastic. You never you never know what you're going to find, like uh, the, the Du Bois short story that was recently uh, discovered last uh, last winter. Oh, I'm forgetting the title. Oh, but uh, oh, Adrian Brown. I want to say her name is. I'm forgetting because this is terrible. Because I actually met her, and you know she's done fabulous work, and I don't want to mess up her name and that kind of thing. But unfortunately, I have. But people are are digging into the past, finding even more things that have been written and 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 that are interesting or fascinating. <laughs> and you know, I I think it's a, a worthy pursuit. And and uh, expanding what Afrofuturism means. And some people say it's already exhausted, and other people say it's the new Harlem Renaissance. And, you know, I don't know who to believe in that sense. But, uh, you know, it, it's captured the academic imagination, certainly. I mean, uh, I, if I come back to Colson Whitehead, he always seems to be uh, dabbling with the speculative in, in his writing. I, at least I find that to, to be the case. Like his first novel, The Intuitionist, and, uh, you know, uh, the second elevation in the, in the office of elevator inspectors is kind of kind of cool, right? And going back into the legend of John Henry days in another book and, and the cyborgian feel you get of, of, of exploring that uh, black mythos, right? And, and uh, Zone 1 is his zombie book, which... Yeah, I got, I got really to get to, when you get to the end, my goodness. And I'm leaving out Sag Harbor and, and the young the young cat that plays the Indian and stuff like that. So, I mean, uh, you know, he's a, he's a great writer. Well, I, have to, okay. I have to get into this, though, and I got to have you back on. We were just, like, <laughs> getting into it. But that's the thing, you know, and, and people don't, you know, there are so many folks that don't realize that, yes, African Americans love science fiction. A lot of us do. You know, right, and they don't they don't know we exist for the most part. That's still I, I find that still to be true just going to academic conferences. Uh I wonder what it's like at WorldCon this weekend. Uh yeah. I've gone you know, to you know, like I said, I, I go to the I used to go to these Star Trek conventions in Colorado and and my last year it was just, it became more and more a trickling of more African Americans there, but initially I and just a few other people, being just a handful of us there. And we were a right. curiosity factor. But and, now, and uh, you know, there's, there's a, a place has been carved out, I hope, and, and we'll keep expanding on it, right? Because, you know, we're yeah. diverse people with diverse interests, and, you know, we're not this monolithic construction That's that right. uh, seems to exist in America's eyes, right? Now, now since you're talking about race in general and, and some ways I also see uh, in terms of the way science fiction is going, you see an explosion in Chicana and Chicano futurisms and indigenous futurisms and uh, Asian 
examples of the of the future uh, as well, which is you know techno orientalism is a, a rival thing for Afrofuture, not rival, but another term that looks at at uh, let's say the yellow peoples of, of science fiction. For I mean, it's such an ugly term, a racist term in some ways, but that's what you have going on as this as this universe is opening up and we're seeing that other people have a future too uh, as it's been written which is what I find fascinating and, and tremendous uh, right now. Yeah, because you know, we are I can, you know, it makes a lot of sense. I just remember, you know as we talked about the beginning of the segment you're talking about the movies you saw as a kid and I was a I was a young adult when I saw those same movies, and just remembering, right? And you know, I mean, Richard Pryor used to play There is, there is Lando, it. but he's like a bit part player, right? Yeah. So, you know, we played like, the role. Thanks. Yeah, we just right. found him. Basically, the sidekick. Yeah, yeah. there's your tokenism, right? So that's it. It's, but it's, but I, I got I to conclude this now because we can go on with this. But I'm going to have you back on here, and if anyone wants oh. to reach you. Do you have a website or anything that people can go to or email that people can reach you at? Uh, I, I do have an email. Uh, the, the simple one is my uh, university email, L at lsu.edu. And you were right the first time. I'm, I'm newly promoted to associate professor. <laughs> oh, okay. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy about that. Uh, I made tenure. And, you know. Well, we got to change the back uh, of the book here. <laughs> I'm using my psychic oh, abilities. Oh, yeah, no, this book was this book came out uh, after that, which is fine. Before before the tenure process, so right, yeah, so that's uh, great, that's great. But thank you, I say I just want to thank you for being. You know, I'm gonna have you back on here because I, you know, we gotta talk some more. And I don't yeah, man, anytime. I would appreciate it. Uh, All right, I'm I mean, definitely getting you on here. Fun. All right, you too. All, All right. You too, and that was again Isaiah Lavender III, the editor of the book, The Politics of Race and Science Fiction, Black and Brown Planets. And obviously, you can see we have a love of science fiction there. And uh, we could just go on, maybe I'll just devote a whole, maybe I'll just push it up to four hours and we'll just talk about it because we could do a whole round table. I could get uh, Natasha back on here, Womack to talk about it. There's so many other folks, and I may just consider doing that. Having a Zeta on, but also eventually doing some sort of roundtable about science fiction with black and brown folks, uh, Asian, just everyone, just getting that on here. But again,
Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.